That's right. Take two. My voice carries so well that I didn't even notice. So how's that story going? Uh, yeah? Are you at the end, the beginning? Has uh, anything exciting happened? Yeah, uh, it's a little loud now, Alan. Yeah, a little. Well, you were trying to get me uh, loud enough without it on. Uh, anyway, sorry about that. But um, there's uh, elements to every great story. We talked about this a little bit ago. Um, there's a scene, plot. You need a scene. Planet Earth is your scene. doesn't matter where you are. Uh, there's a plot. Always an antagonist and a protagonist. Hopefully you're the protagonist in your story, if you know the difference. There's conflict, sacrifice, courage, overcoming, the weak becoming strong. And then always, with a good story, final resolution. Uh, my wife, Chris, uh, I boggles my mind. If she gets a new book, she will, or before she buys the book or orders it or whatever, she'll um, read the last few pages. Oh, like, that's insane. Like, if I already know the end, I don't want to read it. But she wants to make sure it's a good ending because she hates bad endings. So does God, by the way. You know, there's hope in our world. I googled the question this morning. What is the greatest purpose of man? And I was expecting uh, to shake my head at it. The top answer out of 1.5 trillion answers was to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Wow. Imagine that. Top answer from Mr. Google. Um, <clears throat> therefore, your life is to be a story. I, I marvel at uh, my Maggie, who, as you know, six years old. She will pretend and pretend and pretend. If you have kids, you've seen this. Children pretend so well. They live out these pretend stories. When we get older, we lose it. I mean, if anybody saw you running around your living room pretending like her, they'd, they'd uh, submit you to, the, to the, the padded rooms where they talk to you softly all the time. But <clears throat> I'm not saying to go back to your Barbies or your G.I. Joes, or if you were a boy and you like Barbies. <laughs> God has given you a real-life story to live out. And that Matthew 1 and 2 is a story. There's a lot of people who see it as a myth because it's so story-like. But there's a real story in this world that one man has lived out that is actually real, that has all the elements of every great story. But his is the greatest story. And it has all those elements because that's what God wants for the human race. But you also have to be careful here that you're not living a pretend life. You're not like uh, to be a pretender. I, oh, I forgot to add in. Uh, here's, my, here's our favorite story. I asked Chris this morning. She said, Peter Rabbit. And I'm like, we love, because we read these to Maggie. Um, my world's been open to Beatrice Potter. She is amazing. What an amazing author. Writes these kids' stories. What I love about Beatrice Potter is like the little rabbit, the little squirrel, they die in the story. They get like eaten. Yeah, it's very real. We love it. This is Maggie's favorite of late. If you don't know this story, it's about greed. There's a very real moral uh, uh, moral to it. <clears throat> Tom Sawyer. Love it. Love Tom Sawyer. 
and uh, Lord of the Rings. That's actually the uh, the very edition that I have. Uh, and it's a, Lord of the Rings is great. Uh, whatever you want, you know, whatever are your favorites. But they they all of these and more, the ones that are great, all have the same elements to them. And it's the reason why we love them. It's one of the things that Hollywood keeps messing up lately because they're trying to be woke or whatever as they forget and how to tell stories. We don't care that the story repeats itself. They all repeat themselves. The characters change. The scenes change. But they all repeat themselves. And we're to be like Christ. So there's your story, right? It's not pretend. You get it. There's a script. You get the plot the scene, the protagonist, the antagonist, the resolution, the conflict, how to overcome, where's the courage coming from to live out your particular story is all in that book. And that's why it's not a fairy tale for us. We're not living some pretend life. But this story is for every single believer. And we're going to see that today. There's no class next week, or this week, sorry, this week. I always mess that up. Uh, We'll be back uh, Sunday, but no class Tuesday through Thursday, so happy Thanksgiving in advance. Uh, When we get back that Wednesday, we're going to have a Bible study here uh, like we did last time. If you want to attend, just show up. If you need us to wait for you, uh, just let me know and we'll wait. Uh, But I was thinking 4.30 like we did last time on Wednesday, so that's when we get back the 29th of November. I thought a great topic for that would be the temptations of Christ, since that's where we're going next in our study. So that's uh, Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4. And uh, next Sunday I'll remind you of that. And uh, just a great thing to do would just read both chapters, Matthew 4, Luke 4, think about them a bit, and then we'll get together and talk about them. No pressure at all. You don't have to be a master at it or anything. Just if you want, show up and we're just chatting about the Word of God together. I think it's a wonderful thing. Uh, And again, just a reminder, Zoom meetings are on Mondays now at 4 o'clock. I remind myself as well uh, because I'm used to them being on Fridays and it took me like two months to get used to being there (laughs) on a Friday. And now I've already forgotten it twice on uh, Mondays, but... No, I show up eventually, but sometimes it's like 4.05 when someone sends me a text, and they're like, Joe, Zoom, and I'm like, oh, right, right, right. But I'm usually here on Monday, so. All right, let's open up in prayer. Let's be thankful and grateful to our Lord for his word and for our gathering and for this Sunday. What a great day to be together and learn his word. The best way we learn his word is to be humble, reverent, putting aside all things that may distract you and to be just focused and joyful before your Lord. Let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the spirit within us that makes your word come alive. Thank you that through your word, our Lord Jesus Christ, who none of us have ever met, comes alive. The reality of him the reality of this amazing God-man, your Son, the Son of God, the Eternal One, without beginning, without end, the Almighty, the Creator, and also finite man, 
who sits at your right hand, meaning above all rule and authority in a body, in a human body, scars and all. We are so grateful, Father, that you have given to us salvation and a plan of redemption that no one could have ever imagined. The reality of it is so clear in your word, but also in those who believe. For we see, Father, that what you have done, and you have done it all through Jesus our Lord. We ask, Father, that through your Spirit, our hearts would be greatly enlightened by the word we'll see today. And to help us, Father, to be joyful as we sing to you, worship you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All rise, please. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain. I count but loss and poor content on all my
All right, we're going to start in Matthew 2, verse 13. Uh, this past week, we, we looked at the Magi, and <coughs> excuse me, the Magi are now uh, gone, and a dream, Joseph uh, is visited again by the angel in a dream, and he's told to take Mary and the child, or the child and his mother, that's how it's always put by Matthew, child and his mother, to uh, Egypt. Um, is it important that Joseph take the child and his mother, Jesus and mother, to Egypt? I mean, if there's going to be, you know, if God's going to protect them, why not? He can just protect them, right? We, we have, we're dealing with omnipotence here. He, he can, uh, if, uh Herod's lynchmen come to that house, you know, fire from heaven. God has many ways in which he's displayed his power to destroy people. Earth opens up, you know, always flaming hail from heaven. That's always been my favorite. But um, there's a number of things. But yet he's sent to Egypt. The Holy Spirit reveals to Matthew, and to Matthew alone, that this was a part of the divine plan and actually has a significant place in the entire divine plan, as we'll see. So God will not abandon his rebellious son. I was hoping that title would catch the eye of any rebellious sons out there. Raise your hand if you know I won't do that. We are all correct. All of us are in this same situation, same, you know, born into this world, we're rebellious, all of us. You know, the Bible just doesn't pick on Israel, by the way. <clears throat> this will be this thing in my throat will be gone in a minute. The Bible doesn't pick on Israel. It's just Israel are, is God's chosen people. He chose them, uh, well, because he loved them, and there's nothing special about them, obviously. Just read the Old Testament. The prophet that we'll look at today is Hosea. Same thing. Same thing. If you read some lines out of Hosea, you'd think you'd be reading uh, Fox News this morning. Same thing. It hasn't changed. In Israel, in America, in Babylon, in Europe, it doesn't matter. People are people, chosen by God or not. It's just in the church age, so we get this confused, because in the church age, if you're chosen, you're a believer. In the Old Testament, if you're chosen, not necessarily a believer. In the Old Testament, if you're a priest, are you a believer? You could be, you might not be. You're a priest because of your birth. You're in the line of Aaron, you're a priest. You could reject Jehovah Elohim or accept him. (coughs) Excuse me. So God would not abandon his rebellious son. Instead, God sends his perfect son, to rescue and save the prodigal son. So look at Matthew 2.13. Now when they had gone, meaning the Magi, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother. See, that's repeated like five times here in the first, this chapter, and The child and his mother. Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod, 
And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Now, this formula Matthew uses here five times in this opening two uh, chapters. What was fulfilled through the prophet who spoke. And, And that formula is ten times in Matthew, five times right here in the first two chapters. And so Matthew is the, right, the gospel writer who's bringing out the fact that Jesus himself, the Son of God, the Messiah, is the fulfillment of all things Israel. And then when we find out he's the fulfillment of all things Israel, he's also the fulfillment of all things Gentile. And, <clears throat> and so we see it here as well. Through the prophet, this is uh, Hosea 11.1. 1. This is an odd place to pick a prophecy from. But, as we'll see, it's not so much. Out of Egypt I called my son. Alright, so, first off, we see here, get up. If you have a New American Standard like I'm using, you see get up, and it has an exclamation point after it. Uh, In the original Greek, there is no punctuation at all, never mind exclamation points. But, uh, get up is not the commandment here. Take is the commandment. So the, the ver- get up is a participle. Uh, it's an aorist participle. The angel's saying, wake up. And then he says, take. And take the child and his mother. That's the command. So if it seems like Herod's, lynch- Herod's lynchmen are at the door, they're not. No, get up. Go now. That's not what he's saying. <clears throat> the child and his mother. Now, because of this phraseology by Matthew, there's a lot of paintings all over the world, usually in monasteries and Catholic churches, that have the Madonna and the child. And they've become this group, you know, this duo of, uh, dynamic duo of, um, you know, of worship. And, I, you know, I don't, I don't see that here. Certainly, uh, Mary is depicted in the scripture as a sinner. Uh, she is not... A virgin her whole life. Jesus has brothers and sisters, um, you know. And and yeah, she's a wonderful, wonderful woman. But she's not a she's not a sinless woman. And like any human being, she is not worthy of worship. So what I see here, you know, it's Joseph take them, and, and they're frail. Jesus is an infant, or one or two years old tops. Mary is a young girl, and Joseph is, you know, he's a working man. He's strong, he's courageous, he's a good man, he's righteous. And so, um, you know, what we see here and I see here is weakness being protected. And Joseph, protect them, take them away, and he does. And then, out of Egypt I called my son, well, Israel was called out of Egypt as the son. And that's the reference. In Hosea 1, uh, sorry, Hosea 11, Israel was called out of Egypt as a son and rebelled. (laughs) Don't you worry about it. And Irene, you're fine. You can get that out. Just with my phlegm, we'll both, we'll both. I know, I know. I could talk all morning and my voice is fine. I get up here and it's like, (laughs) I quit smoking years ago. So here they are, right? I almost put up Charlton Heston on this picture because I just love him. I love him. Um, 
but that's that's what happened. But what happened after? They're free. They actually Exodus 15 is where this happens. For, no, Exodus 14 they freak out, and then they get they make it through, and then they they write this poem. It's a powerful, magnificent praise song to God, and they sing this, and then they get to the bitter waters of Marah, and they complain. Then they get hungry in chapter 16 and they complain. God sends them manna. And then in verse chapter 17, they get thirsty and they complain. Some son. But then Jesus comes out of Egypt. Call the son that the father desired. You see what's happening here. It's actually extremely important that he goes to Egypt. And comes out of there because he's fulfilling this prophecy, just as the Holy Spirit revealed to Matthew. That the son that God called out of Egypt is rebellious, deserving of death, to to whom, to which, God um, would bring incredible discipline upon them. The Syrians and the Babylonians. God would be very patient for hundreds of years, but eventually he says to them, there's no way out for you now. You're doomed. I'm gonna t- all the stuff that I gave you. I'm taking away the land I've given you. I'm taking it away. In fact, I want to be rid of you. And then we see this, and you see the heart of God here. It, you know, a lot of people will say, "Well, it's an anthropopathism, right? Like God's acting like a man, acting like a father, a human father." But you know, I don't see that. You know, what I see, and the reason why the language is used here, is that we see an angry father. All right, who, who here is, well, you've all raised sons, haven't you? Or daughters? I have two daughters. God only gives me girls. I think I know why. <clears throat> My first one rebelled like a true chagru. And chagrus rebel, they go all the way. Good for you, honey. She's re- I could say that with a smile because she is, she is safe and sound and a happy girl. I miss her to death. But that means, you, know, you see it in Maggie. She's got a lot of chagrin in her. <laughs> too much. Way too much. And uh, she's funny. She's got that going for her. But she's doomed. Yes. The rebellion's going to be terrible. I, by the time she's a rebellious teenager, I'll be what? I'll be like 70 years old. I'm not going to care. Right, Keith? You're like 70. I'll be so old, I'll be like, whatever, I can't even hear you right now. Yada, yada, yada. You get so angry, you get angry, and you're like, God, I just want to throw you out. But can you? And we see this in Hosea. God says, I am so incensed at you. But then he says, and it's gorgeous, Hosea chapter 11 is the most beautiful poem. Not the most, but it's one of the most. How can I, how can I be rid of you, my son? And this is rebellious Israel, right? All of us here, but you know, we've been getting together for years now. We know a lot about Israel, the Exodus, and their history, and it's terrible. It's really the history of the human race. Biblically. Egypt was the shelter of Jacob and his sons. 
Yeah, back in Genesis, when there's a famine in the land in Canaan, they went to Egypt and for hundreds of years. But then it turned to slavery. And their slave, from their slavery, God set them free. And so this becomes a story. God has purposed human life to be a magnificent story. Your life now, I'm talking about you. Those pages that are being written. You know, it's, uh, David writes uh, Psalm. It's one of the Psalms. I almost had the number. But then that neuron went, pew. you know, when they die, they like die in a second. And the neuron's like, there it is. And then it goes, Psst, and it goes out. <laughs> and it, it's dead. It's gone. Um, Psalm 100 and something. But David says, all the days of my life are written in your book. Imagine God writing our lives down, and then he's got to set up, sit down with his holy pen and write down what you're doing. And he's like, God, this is terrible, right? Or, what is he writing? I mean, that's going to be the challenge that comes out of this. Are we awake to this? Am I? Are we awake to the fact that God has purposed for me in the way that he has You know, for me personally, for you personally, you have a plan for your life. You're predetermined. That a magnificent story of goodness, of heroism, of virtue, of righteousness, of overcoming evil, the evil in your life, as we have seen, is absolutely necessary. Rejoice at the trials that are in your life. James 1, 2. For they produce endurance. How in the world does anybody have a good story who doesn't have endurance? Of all of those stories... And whose story has the greatest endurance? The Lord's. You picture him in Gethsemane saying, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. But your will, not mine, endurance. Where did he learn? He had to learn it, right? He's not there as God. I mean, he is God, but he's emptied himself of the expression of his deity to be completely and utterly human. And he overcame evil. By obeying his Father, by his faith, by his obedience, by following the Father's will. His story we're reading over and over and over. God has fashioned your story just like it. But in your scene, your scene is different. The works you do are different. However, your antagonist, well, you have a a new antagonist that he didn't have, which is your flesh. But you do have the devil. And here's what the devil's trying to always convince the world or humanity that this is the utmost of your existence. This is what I expected to find. I expected to find some Zen Buddhist thing when I typed into Google, what is the purpose of man? I was, I was pleased to find what I found. But is there anything wrong with this? No, I, I hope not. Because this is great. I mean, especially as we're coming up on December, that looks pretty nice. But if this is the end goal of your life, if this is your whole purpose, then your purpose is not Christian. Your purpose is not. It's not Satan wants us to think that humanity's utter, utmost goal, utmost meaning, is to exist. Hence, save the planet. Right? Just keep, save the planet, save humanity. They keep pushing this line, this, 
It's, it's stupid. Plus, we can't do it anyway. Nobody understands the complexity of climate and all of that. But all of that aside, where's the heroism? Now, where's the goodness in man? Where's the virtue in man? Man is designed for this. This is what God has designed you for. And that is your story. You know, retire on the beach. That's the last chapter in my story. Yeah, man, that's a snooze fest. It, look, if you get to retire on the beach, God bless you, you know. If it's God's plan for your life, great. But what, you know, we have been called and we are God's workmanship. What passage am I referencing? Ephesians 2.10. We are God's workmanship designed in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works which he has predestined us to walk in. So there's nothing wrong with this. And you know, that first song that we sang, I, I, I do, I love that song. I love the way, I, when I first heard it, the way they sing it, I'm like, wow, this is a little too spooky for me. But now, you know, I, I love the, it's spooky. You know, their, their way that they do it, it's, it's really quite good, I think. I like it. But <clears throat> never be jealous of the uber-rich. Because they have that. Actually, there's a big old mansion right behind this guy if he's one of the uber-rich. You know, He's got servants. He didn't even have to drag that cooler down to the beach with him. Right? Dragging it through the sand, it's always a bummer. Um, because the best life, the Christ life, is what you're called to. And we get this out of out of Egypt, I called my son. Because we have been called. The uber rich or the rich, anybody who's not living the Christian life, they're not living the best life. Not by a mile. They're not even close. And all of us who know this life can actually live this life. Everybody in the kingdom of heaven is poor. It's very true. It doesn't matter how much money you have on earth. He doesn't command us to get poor on earth. But we, what we have, God has given us. If God tells us, give it all away, we're like, yes, sir. God says, keep it. But he teaches us to be gracious with it. He teaches us not at all to put stock or happiness or purpose in money or things. They are far. They're not even secondary. They're tertiary to to the true purpose of our life, which is him. And this life that he has set us free to live. That's our story. So when God called them out of Egypt, when he called Israel out of Egypt, he made them a nation. He made them a kingdom. All right, right at Mount Sinai. Moses went up on the mountain. Ten commandments were spoken. All of Israel said, we will totally keep all those commandments. God said, yeah, you're right. And, but God didn't respond with, yeah, right. Un- amazingly, God said they have spoken well. That's what he says. You have spoken well. You keep them all. So look at Exodus. Go to Exodus 19. <clears throat> Exodus 19, look at verse 1. Out of Egypt I called my son. You 
Now, we, we, you, everybody in the church, all born-again believers in this age, are a part of a priesthood. You are a priest. Uh, every single believer. You don't have to go to school. You don't have to wear a suit or a little white collar like the priest that I was brought up with. Father Maha, always loved Father Maha, scariest man on the planet when I was a kid. Uh, <coughs> but we are all priests. Exodus 19.1, in the third month, this is after, the, after they have left Egypt, in the third month the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. On that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they had set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Talk about a camp. About two million people, roughly, over a million. It's quite a camp. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. See, I brought you out. Now, then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And if you obey me, he says, you will be my possession, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. What was Israel supposed to be? A holy nation, a kingdom of priests. But what are priests? You know, we say, well, only the Levites would be priests. Really, only the people, the, the sons born from Aaron would be priests. No women, just the sons of Aaron. They would be priests. But yet God says here, I want you all to be priests. And therefore, what he means here is that I want you all to know me. And not just know of me, but know me personally. Worship me. And he's already said it here. Keep my covenant and obey my voice. That is a priest. A priest is one who stands before God and says, I am yours. And present my body as a living and holy sacrifice. I am a priest. I obey you. I worship. I give thanks. I represent others. For us, we do this in prayer. <clears throat> well, how did they do with this? Did they become a nation of priests? They go into the land and they worship false gods. Talk about priests or not. They worship Baal. They worship Malok. They worship all kinds of these false gods from the nations that are around them. They do not. They are rebellious sons. A legitimate priest worships the Lord, gives thanks to the Lord, serves the Lord, does the good of the Lord, pleases the Lord. I get all of those terms from Hebrews chapter 13. He does good, he gives thanks, he praises, he pleases. All his Lord, his or her. And all of us are priests. You're not priests by birth, you're priests by new birth. You are all priests. So go to 1 Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> Because the son, who God called his son, Israel, absolutely failed and rebelled. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. 
I see there's something amazing here because you've been made a priest. You didn't apply for the job. So now it's it's on you to be one. You see, like, how do you communicate this? You are a priest by new birth, by faith in Christ. You are a priest. And so, <clears throat> in essence, you have to be one. Anyway, let's read it first. First Peter 2, 4. And coming to him is a living stone which has been rejected by men. He has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up into a, as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are, and I am, all believers in this age are a part of a holy priesthood. And this puts upon us certain responsibilities. And he says it here, to offer up spiritual sacrifices. We're not offering animals anymore. No more blood sacrifices. No more rituals. But offering spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And how we're going to find out they're acceptable is through his word. 1 Peter 2.9, go down to verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. All Old Testament references here. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As unbelievers, we born into this world as sinners... But when we believe the gospel, we received mercy and we became a people, as he says. You are, the, it's not a people, sorry, the people of God. And so the son that comes out of Egypt, Israel was the son that came out of Egypt and rebelled. Jesus is the son that comes out of Egypt. And I, I note, you note here how, just using my pictures, big, bold, noisy, Miracle, right? Coming out of Egypt. And then, quiet. You see this so much in the scripture. Big, bold. And God's like, I don't need bold. The world likes bold. I don't, I, I don't care for it. I'm not saying he doesn't care for it. I'm not going to speak for him. But, you know, it's, it's often like this. The birth of the Lord. It's quiet. Anywho, he saved us from death, our Lord did. So when the Son comes out, the true Son, he creates a nation. You see it? So the nation who was called the Son came out of Egypt and God saw them rebel. Of course, he always knew they would. And then this Son comes out of Egypt and he himself makes a nation. And that's his body. We just read about it in 1 Peter 2. It's a holy nation of priests. Just what God wanted. Remember, Exodus 19, you follow my will, you obey my commands, and you are my possession. I want you to be a holy priesthood, all of you. And now, now you have to wrap your mind around this and you have to figure this out. I can't figure it out for you, by the way. I can only point you in the direction. I'm still figuring it out myself. Now, 
See, God said, you obey me, you keep my, follow me, you obey me, and you're my possession. Now, when you believe the gospel, before you did anything other than obey the gospel, you became his possession and a priest, and you can never lose it. He gave you a covenant. Not th- This covenant at Sinai is a conditional one. You break it, he just read it. You break it, and you're not a priest. But our covenant, called the new covenant, you can't, I I would say you break it, you can't break it. It's unbreakable. So here God has put you in a place where you're his possession and a priest no matter what you do. And in walks, you know, if there was a Calvinist out in the hallway, he'd bust through those curtains right now saying, hold on a second. If there was a Reformed theologian right behind him saying, no, you hold on a second, and then he'd tell me to hold on a second. And then a covenant theologian would walk in and say, all of you, shut up. And let me tell you what this is about. And that's why we have all of these theories, because it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to the human mind. This, this makes sense. You keep it, you're a priest, you break it, you're not. Now, but that's, this is the rebellious son. When the, the non-rebellious perfect doing the whole will of the father, son of God who becomes a man's son, comes out of Egypt, he creates a nation in which he makes us priests, makes us God's possession, and there's nothing we can do to lose it. And then right behind that crew comes in the Arminianist and says, well, it is all free will and you totally can lose it. Because, it, you know, it's a mind blower. It doesn't make any sense to us. I can only teach the scripture. So maybe questions pop into your head. Maybe they don't. I can help you with those, but I can't help you with those in an hour. Or even four, probably. I can't cover it all. Like, I'm already past time. I was supposed to be at this part of my notes ten minutes ago. Um, yeah, to, to find the real depth of this, folks, you have to let me point you as best I can. I'm not perfect. Let me point you, and when that direction, you've got to go, you've got to roll up your sleeves, you've got to dig, you've got to pray, you got to search, you got to meditate, pray some more, read your Bible, and dig. Uh, so here's the priesthood in Hebrews 13, 15 through 16. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing for su- with such things. Which such, sorry, sacrifices, God is pleased. There's your priesthood. Whether you do this or you don't, you're still a priest. But once that sinks in, you know, say, well, if I'm a priest and I get to do this, say, well, you mean I'm still a priest and I can blow this off? Absolutely. And then what life are you living? And it is not even close to your best life. As God's son, you're only ask, you're asking for discipline, and you'll get it. You're saying yeah, that happiness that you promised me, and that contentment, and that courage, and that story. You're 
throwing it away. For what? For what? So you can sit on the beach a little longer? I don't know. You know sitting on the beach isn't a big deal. Matthew is going to compile his first extended discourse of Jesus uh, in Matthew 5 through 7, in which this very topic is going to be addressed. Who is the member of the kingdom of heaven? And that what we call it the Sermon on the Mount. Who is this disciple of Christ? Matthew 5, 6, and 7. An astounding level of virtue and goodness and sacrifice and courage and overcoming in the face of antagonists. It's your story. And we're all following this same script, but how it plays out because our scenes and characters and all such are different for each of us. But here you have it. So out of Egypt I called my son. Let's see where this is from. It's from Hosea. So go to Hosea chapter 2. I have to fast forward here a little bit. Hosea chapter 2. Now, when we looked at Micah, and the reason we looked at Micah was Matthew 2.6. Uh, uh, Matthew 2.6 was, you know, where's the son? Where's he who was born king of the Jews? And the scribes and the chief priests in, in Jerusalem knew that this was Bethlehem. And then that... Prophecy is quoted, Micah 5.2 is quoted by Matthew. Um, so he's born in Bethlehem. You, know, you are not least among the tribes of Judah. Out of you will come one who will rule in Bethlehem, Ephratah. What we did with that, if you, were, if you listened last week, is that we went to Micah and saw that prophecy in its context. And this we must do if we're going to see all that God wants us to see. And I know it takes time. I understand. Like I was hoping I'd have a little more time today to do a lot in Hosea, but time is not going to let me do that. Maybe that's how God wants it. God would love for you to read Hosea. Pastor, come on. How long, uh, wait, 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 how long is it? It's 14 chapters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, sometimes those chapters in the Bible are like 70 verses long. Sometimes they're six verses long. So which one is it, you know? It's not that long. God spent 1,600 years compiling these words for us. And we think, 20, 15, 20 minutes set aside to read the Bible on my own is like, wow, God, way too much. I challenge you. So I, uh, I'll use this example. Um, I've got this assignment in class. Uh, Deb and I did one of these a little bit ago, and I've got a, it's the same assignment with now with the prophetic books. And in this assignment, I'm to pick someone out of my congregation and say, what do you know about the prophets? We do like a little interview, and then we pick one book that they're going to read by themselves, and then we get together after they've read it, and we compare notes. I read it, they read it, 
And then we, you know, have a little discussion about what did you learn, what did you know, you know, what didn't you know, and all that kind of stuff. So I ask, you know, Chris is easy. She's right there. So Chris read uh, Jeremiah, which is no little feat. Jeremiah is the biggest. It's bigger than Isaiah. It's the biggest prophetic book. And so we started talking about it. And it's amazing to see how much she learned. And she never knew was there. I can't teach you Jeremiah. I mean, I, I can try. I, I, perhaps we'll get there. But I can't teach you the whole thing. I, I'd just be here reading it to you. And if you, if you never read through it on your own, cover to cover, then there's an aspect of Jeremiah that you'd never know. And if that's your choice, that's your choice. And you may not like me for challenging you on it, but if that's your choice, then that, there's an aspect of what God has given you that you're saying, eh, I don't want that one. And we're cherry-picking what we want. God spent a long time putting this Bible together. We've got time. But, all right, here we go with Isaiah. Hosea. <laughs> Hosea is contemporary with uh, Isaiah and Micah. I mean, they're, they're prophesying right around the same time. What they're prophesying to is the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And what's about to happen very soon, in all three of their cases, they're all warning the northern kingdom that Assyria, you see it up here at the top, is the Assyrian Empire. They are coming, and nobody's going to stop them. You're doomed. I've warned you, and I've warned you, and I've warned you, and you're doomed. They're going to come. They're going to take you. I mean, it's awful, by the way. What a horrible job being an Old Testament prophet. It's horrible. Because no one's going to listen to you. And the visions that you're getting are like visions of like dead babies. I mean, I'm not, I'm not kidding here. Of, of moms watching their kids die. Of parents watching their young children being taken away as slaves in the worst possible way. Watching your family and your loved ones be executed in front of your eyes. It's barbaric. The Assyrians have no moral code here. They're not going to do this nicely. God has warned them and warned them. How could God do this to his own people? So in uh, Hosea, there's accusation. There's warning. And then there's this. Actually, in all three of them, there's hope. Take uh, Just look at Hosea 2.8, since we're here. Uh, for she does not know that it was I, meaning Israel. So Hosea is prophesying to, Hosea is in the northern kingdom. I think he might be in both. But uh, Hosea 2.8, again, for she does not know, meaning Israel, that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold. And what did she do with this? which she used for Baal. She took what I gave them. This prodigal son, isn't it? Hey, hey, Dad, can I have my inheritance? I'm going to go to a faraway land and I'm going to spend it on something else than what you purposed it for. These people have taken God's blessings and used them, the very blessings God has given them, to worship a false god. 
So look at 2.13. I will punish her for the days of the Baals when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. She follows her lovers. Now, amazingly, I I told you being an Old Testament prophet was a terrible job. Hosea in chapter 1 is told to marry a harlot. He's told to do this. Now, we don't know if she was a harlot before he married her or after. We know she was after. But they have three children together. And then she leaves him. She leaves Hosea. And she goes and gets together with either an old lover or someone else and marries another man. She's an adulteress. And Hosea is told by God, go to her and buy her from her new husband and take her home. And love her. Really? Was this in the job description when I signed up? Because I didn't see it. Is it in the fine print? But he does. And what Hosea does, that's in the first two chapters, what Hosea does, as God tells him to do this, is a picture of God and Israel. Because God is going to go and buy her though she has committed adultery on him. In chapter 2, right near the beginning, is the first glimmer of hope. Let's read that, and then we'll get to 11. 2.16. Now, we just saw, if you read through this, you'll see God says it over and over again through Hosea that they're doomed and, and the reason why. They're accused of worshiping false gods and rejecting God and being unfaithful to God, really spitting in God's face. 2.16, and it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi. Ishi, husband, lover, and you will no longer call me Baali. You're not going to love Baal anymore. You're going to love me. How? We pay attention. Well, look at verse 19. I will betroth you to me for how long? Forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. Which he says throughout this letter in multiple places that this is their problem, that they don't know him. So how are they going to know him? Doesn't it? It almost sounds like he's going to force them to know him. All right, for the sake of time, we skip ahead. Now, all through uh, chapters 4 through 10 is all accusation and warning. There really isn't a glimmer of hope in there. I think there's maybe one. Um, But anyway. We can skip that for the sake of time. 4 through 10, accusation, warning, accusation, warning, accusation, warning. Any line you read, you're like, good Lord. And before you say to yourself, oh, that Israel, that Israel, point that accusing finger at yourself because all of us have gone astray. None of us sought righteousness. You and I know the Lord because he came to us and saved us. He gave it. We believed. I'm, I'm no Calvinist. 
but he saved us. He called us for the foundation of the world. He called us. And it's because of what he's done to you at the moment of salvation that he has given you as a gift, the ability to discern him and his word. And that's the only reason you're different. So when we start looking at the prophecies and we say, wow, Israel's just terrible, aren't they? Don't miss the fact that you're terrible. Because what has happened here and what will happen to Israel in the future as a nation on planet Earth has already happened to you. You have been made a son or a daughter, not on works, not based on works, but based on faith. Look at 11.1, Hosea 11.1. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. This whole poem. If you take the time out to read Hosea, slow down here at 11 and 14. 14 at the very last is another poem, the last poem. That's the last chapter. 11 and 14. Just go slow. Take your time with them. And put yourself as the one. This poetry is written to you. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. So that second line in 11.1 is what Matthew was quoting. For Joseph, being told by the angel, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, because Herod is after to kill him. So protect your family, Joseph. Take them to Egypt. And he does. And, and then Matthew sees, Matthew sees this. Under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit says, Matthew, look at this. And he sees it. And then you're like, well, wait a minute. Who is this talking about? In the context of the whole book of, I, of Hosea, this is Israel. And Israel, well, look at verse 2. The more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim, Israel, to walk. Right? This, this tender father who's helping his child take the first steps. Ephraim is Israel. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. It's one of the titles for the Lord, the Lord your healer, Exodus 15. I led them with cords of a man with bonds of love. And I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and fed them. See how tender this is. And we have to, you have to determine this for yourself, because it's a total, well, I guess it has to be an opinion. Is God really like this, or is he just talking like a man? Is he tender like this? The Almighty, who has all no beginning and no end, is so far above us, it's ridiculous. Does he actually have a tender heart that can break for his own creation? There's times where it's part of me where I'll say, oh, absolutely not. And then there are other times where I'll say, oh, heck yeah. I don't know. Then again, all I can do is point you in the direction. 
But as I see this now, I see that this is exactly what God is. I mean, we see in his word that he can be pleased. If he can be pleased, he can be displeased. The Lord Jesus wept. Of course, he was human. That's a wonderful thing to think about. We'll all find out when we get there. So the father then states, I am bringing Assyria to discipline you. And as I said a few minutes ago, it's awful. It's barbaric. But then, verse 7, the father, the anger of the father. Verse uh, 7, so my people are bent on turning from me. Though they call them to the one, though they call them to the one on high, none at all exalts him. None, not one, exalts me. But then he says in verse eight, "How can I give you up, O Ephraim, Israel? It's one of the tribes of Israel. It speaks of the northern kingdom. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel?" How can I make you like Adma and treat you like Zeboim? I don't know how to pronounce them, but both of those strange-looking cities were destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah. All right, so these were places that were leveled by God's power. He says, how can I treat you like... You could say Sodom and Gomorrah. How can I treat you like Sodom and Gomorrah? My heart is turned over within me. It means that God is conflicted. All my compassions are kindled. This is where I thought of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let this cup pass from me. All my compassions are kindled and my heart is turning within me. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. They will walk after the Lord. They will roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar and his sons will come trembling from the west from captivity. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will settle them in their houses, declares the Lord. This is crazy. Rebellious, rebellious, rebellious. But how can I give you up. I cannot. So, Israel is restored. They're called back. All believers came back. There are many, you know, there's believers and unbelievers in Israel, but from captivity, they're called back. God is faithful to his promise. In the future kingdom, it's believers only. Yes, we know. But this we want to grab from this passage, not get in the conflict of who's saved and who isn't, but to actually look at the compassion and the love of our Father. That's what we must see. And so we see prophecy in its context. I didn't really have time, right, to get through a lot of Hosea, but we do see it here in its context. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son, this rebellious son. I called him, and he rebelled, and then I said I'll have compassion on him, and I'll bring him into their houses, into my kingdom. Now think about it. How is God supposed to do that? 
Did he just say, well, you know what? Forget about all your sins. I'm sending Assyria home. No, he's very clear. The Assyrians are going to come and destroy you. So this means that this compassionate father is justice and perfect holiness, and he is going to exact judgment on them. So if we're all rebellious, and we are, how in the world is he supposed to get us into his kingdom? And then he sends another son. This son who becomes our high priest. He's not, even, he's not from the tribe of Levi. He's from Judah. He sends another son. This son goes to Egypt. But then when he comes out of Egypt, he is not rebellious. And what he does. Now, this not rebellious son, the only man who is at all deserving of anything that the father should give, sacrifices himself for all the rebellious. What a story. What a story. Our story must be like it. The same courage, sacrifice, love, wisdom, understanding, tenacity, and for us, failure, and relying on the compassion of our Lord. When we confess our sins, why do we know we're forgiven? Because of what he's done. We know we're forgiven. We must love like he does. You who are believers in Christ were as sinful and as rebellious as Israel. All of us are. And as believers, we're still sinners. Now, I've conquered some things in my Christian life that I have been uh, weary of in the past. I've conquered some things. I'm like, you know, at times I thought I'd never be able to conquer some of the things that had hold on me, but I was able to through God's infinite grace and his power. And I said, well, you know, once some things have been conquered in years past, I thought, well, it's smooth sailing now. But then what you didn't realize is that there were all kinds of other things that were wrong with you that you never even saw. And there's more and more. And I think to myself, well, if I'm or any of us are going to live this life to the level that he wants us to and to experience it as it is, everything in our lives must be handed over to him. Everything. And you gain. The reward that you get for that is incredible. And God will reveal to you. Where is the rebellion still in your heart? What, are, what parts of your heart are you holding on to as yours, as if they are? What idols are you still worshiping? What lust still rules you? What people are you not compassionate to? What areas in your heart have no wisdom at all, only pride? Where are they? Oh, Lord, they're all gone now. We have to love like he does. You're a priest now forever. You have to worship him. It's an an intricate part of being a priest. Know the Father and the Son and worship them. The Lord has come out of Egypt like the children of Israel, except without rebellion, and then he gave his life for the rebellious and gave us his life. 
Do you see his love in this? Do you see how rebellion and sin only breed a lack of understanding? That's all they do. Why do we keep ourselves pure? So we can impress God. No, so we can look at him. So we can know him. When we're, unpure, when we're thinking and living impurely, we're not seeing. That's why we strive to be virtuous. That's why we strive to build this story. Because the more that we do it, the more that we see him who is the author and perfecter of faith. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father, for your word. And thank you that you have given us the truth through the scriptures. Thank you for appointing Matthew to this delightful passage and for this poem that you have written through Hosea to the world to show your compassion and your love and also your justice so that we may live, Father, in fear of you and seek understanding. Know that folly will only lead to ignorance, but virtue will lead to wisdom. Thank you, Father, for all you do. In Christ's name, amen. It's cold and flu season. It's allergy season, yes. Uh, Let's pray for our offering. Thank you, Father, for your opportunity that you've given us to give. As your believer priests, we give. We thank you, Father, that you have sustained us as a ministry. Uh, Whatever you will to do, Father, we will follow. Uh, Thank you for um, uh, all things and help us to use the gifts that we have to your glory to promote your word and that alone. And we ask in Christ's name, amen. Time to fly away. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to be together. Thank you for our assembly, for our place, for your love, for your Holy Spirit amongst us who gives us unity and peace. Thank you for your word. Closing moments of our service are dedicated to anyone who has not come to believe in Christ as their Savior. If you're listening to me and you have not believed in Christ, if you're listening, you must be considering. And so please consider who is the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart right now. Don't wait. Don't wait. Don't, don't put it off. Put, think now. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? As God is revealing himself to you, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, has become a man, came into this world to die for the sins of the world. He came into this world as the only perfect man to take your place because you and I are imperfect. We are sinners and we need a Savior. Christ Jesus is the only Savior. God does not ask you to do anything to impress him with any kind of works because you can't do that. 
the only way to salvation is faith. God says that himself. He sent his son so that you can believe upon him. Believe that Jesus Christ is your Savior who died for your sins and resurrected again on the third day, who is alive right now at the right hand of God. If you believe in him, you will be saved. Thank you, Father, for all you do. In Christ's name, amen.